Among our biggest insights, I think, is this idea that we don't actually have habits as human beings. Rather, our habits have us. And what I mean by that is we think that our habits are in some sense internal to us, which is why we describe them as my habits and I have this habit. But if you look at why humans behave in the way they do, and you notice that, for example, the same Andy Paul will behave differently in a library on Monday morning as you would in a bar on a Friday night. That's not because you're two different people, it's because you're in two different situations. Hi friends, welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now that was Andrew Sykes. He's the founder and CEO of Habits at Work and author of an excellent book titled The 11th Habit, Design Your Company Culture to Foster the Habits of High Performance. Now, this was such a fun conversation. You're really going to enjoy it. I love it when I have a chance to talk with people who I believe really get it, you know, who understand in reality, not the fake world of so many sales experts, but really understand the reality of what it takes to connect with other people and help influence the choices and decisions they make to achieve the business outcomes that they desire. Now, in this episode, we talk about the 10 habits of high performance that Andrew spells out in his book, and then we dive into the 11th habit from the title of the book, which is self-care. It is, as Andrew writes in his book, a habit that is not directly a part of our jobs, but that prepares each one of us to be our best selves and, as a result, to be great at our jobs. We dig into why this 11th habit has to be ingrained into the culture of your company and talk about why, as Andrew shares, we have to change the narrative from we serve our customers, companies, or children at the expense of ourselves to we serve our customers, companies, and children by first investing in ourselves. Very powerful powerful stuff, and we get into this and much, much more. But before we get to Andrew, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Andy. I'm thrilled to be on your show. Well, thank you. That's very nice of you. Um, thrilled to have you here. Uh, you, Where have you been sheltering during this pandemic? In Chicago. It's uh, the longest period of my adult life that I've not been on an airplane. So that's been an interesting <laughs> change of pace. You're like many of the people I speak to and many of the people I know, obviously, in sales who, like myself, I mean, it's just like, yeah, it's been on one flight in the last, well, since since the beginning of March. So that's unprecedented for me. I mean, I'm usually, certainly I've had periods of my career, I've been on it every week. Uh, as it is, I usually fly a couple times a month. And yeah, not anymore. Yeah. I mean, I was, I, my wife, yeah, I was telling a story about my wife uh, when <laughs> I was taking that first flight. It was in june we were flying from new york to san diego or actually right at the end of may and she sort of caught me paused in the middle of the room uh not really moving she says what's the problem and i said well i'd forgotten how to pack <laughs> it had been such a developed muscle i knew where everything went instantly i didn't have to write a list or anything i just knew and then suddenly it's like Oh, where's everything go? <laughs> yeah, it's a developed skill. You know, those uh, shortcuts we take through airports, the way you get through TSA security. <laughs> yeah, all that. A set of skills that are no use at all right now. Okay, but so here's the question for you, though, Andrew. Do you miss it? 
I did initially find a lot of relief because I was on airplanes three or four days a week away from home a lot and it was a welcome change. But now I have to say I miss it. I, I like being with my customers face to face. I love being in a room with people. I like the productivity I enjoy on an airplane. I never buy the Wi-Fi. So if I'm flying from New York to San Diego, I've got four bit hours and I'm just super focused. So there's a lot about it that I miss. And of course, there's a lot that I could uh, happily never experience again. Some of the worst parts of airport, some of the food. <laughs> yeah. On balance, I'm, I miss being in an airplane only because I love getting to the other side and being in different places. Well, that's it. That is it. I mean, I, I people ask me because I'd spent yeah, about 15 years, one period, traveling overseas all the time, you know, hundreds of thousands of miles per year. And people said, did you love it? And I said, to your point, oh, I love being there. <laughs> that part in between, getting there, getting back, not so fun. It's probably a good analogy for selling. You know, we we love closing the deal. It's the getting there that can be challenging sometimes. <laughs> That's true. Now, if I could just skip all the early stages of a deal, that'd be perfect. Uh, well, actually not, because that's really when you get to know people. But So let me ask you, is because this is actually going to tie a little bit to comments we just made is, is, and the conversation is, so what's, what's the single biggest lesson you've learned about yourself personally during the pandemic? That I can still get the enjoyment of leading people through a course virtually. Mm-hmm. The first week of doing it, and, and we were very lucky in our business. We had taken all of our curriculum virtual two years ago in response to our global clients saying, we have people in multiple time zones, figure it out. Right. And so we were ready for this. But I have to say, we still had 90% of our work was live instructor-led training. And what I was worried about was that I couldn't recreate that connection with another human being or a group of human beings. And so what I've learned is that with a lot of expert moves and intentionality, you can create that human-to-human connection despite the technology barriers. Well, so let's dig into that. So what did you do differently in order to make those connections? Yeah, a couple of things. Uh, One is slowing down and having empathy for the fact that people are distracted when you're communicating over Zoom or Meet. And so you need to create mm-hmm. a bit more space for the same amount of work that you could get done live. Uh, the second I've learned is the most difficult thing to do is to stare into that green dot, your camera on your screen while you're <laughs> presenting. So that right. other people feel like they're looking at you rather than looking down when you're seeing their video. And then the third thing is, is uh, that actually there is less difference in virtual versus live provided that you're doing both well. And, you know, I'd expected to come out of like that. There is a completely different set of skills for virtual versus live, and there are some nuances for sure. For sure. But it's more the same than it is different. Yeah. Okay. And that's, yeah, I've been on the soapbox since the pandemic started. When everybody started cranking out this content, these you know, avalanche of books being published about virtual selling, that's like, yeah, it's it's more the same than it's different. And I think you're absolutely right. There are nuances you want to make sure you get right. But the effective behaviors that you have to present in order to be good at selling in a face-to-face world or pre-pandemic world are the same. Yeah. 
And I do think there are many advantages to virtual that allow us to meet more people, spend more time with them than when we had to spend an hour a day or four hours a day on an airplane or in a, a taxi getting to our customers. So the, the trade-off is not all a loss. I do think there's gains and losses on both sides of this transaction. Sure. But let me ask you, is, is pre-pandemic, when you or your team were selling your services to a client, typically what did that engage, what did that look like, that process? I mean, how often would you meet your clients that weren't based in Chicago, where you are? Is, is how, many would, how often would you meet with them face-to-face to close a deal? Ever? Once? Twice? I mean, what did it typically look like? Yeah, well, for Chicago-based clients where we're based – we would typically have 75% of our meetings face-to-face because it was an option. Mm-hmm. And that was the default, and it worked wonderfully, and we may take them to lunch afterwards. And for our national clients or our global clients, it most of it was virtual anyway. <laughs> but there usually was this point when people wanted to see you live, and so we'd get on sure. an airplane and go and close the deal. It's that part that's been replaced, and I'm not sure that anyone really misses it. Yeah, but I mean that's sort of my point is is this is the thing that sort of I don't know pet peeve drives me nuts. Whatever is when people talk about you know this new thing, this virtual selling, and and it's like, well, how are you using travel and face to face meetings in the first place, right? I mean, use them to advance the deal, but if you didn't need to use one to specifically advance a deal at a certain time, do it virtually. I mean, I was I started my international sales career. Back in 1985, I don't want to sound myself too old. <laughs> I was selling multi-million-dollar deals primarily through the phone. Yeah, back then, I mean, this—I was telling people, you know, virtual selling started when Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone. Absolutely, and I will <laughs> say, like, you know, selling over the phone versus selling over Zoom or Meet, where you can actually see someone's face. Right, technology has has made it a lot simpler to sell virtually. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. We're in violent agreement. Let's not beat that to death. So you just published a book called The 11th Habit, Design Your Company Culture to Foster the Habits of High Performance. One of the reasons I was interested in speaking with you is because this idea of performance improvement is, is big for me because I think on balance, sales organizations fail to, <laughs> to be able to coach people and train people to improve their performance. So um, and you, you've got an interesting take, which is something I'm seeing more people talk about. And this, it's your eleventh habit. Uh, we can go through your ten habits of high performance. I think you're spot on in those. Um, again, found myself nodding my head at those. Uh, you know, practice deliberately, listen empathetically, ask powerful questions to learn deeply, keep your word to build your trust, which is huge. You know, straight out of. Uh, <sighs> the speed of trust, you know, Stephen M. R. Covey, uh, tell stories to change minds. Now, that's, this is an interesting one. This is your fifth habit, tell stories to change minds. So I wonder, in, in a sales perspective, and this is I'm talking purely from a sales perspective, I look at more as we tell stories to help people make up their minds. And I, th- I think this is a, I just wonder what you think about that. Because I had this conversation with uh, Jonah Berger, who wrote this book, The Catalyst, about you know, how to change anyone's mind. And I was like, yeah, I think in sales, if you're trying to, if you think you're in a position where you're trying to change someone's mind, you're on the wrong path because you really want to help them make up their minds. 
Well, I, I think that's an interesting distinction, and I'm not sure that it's one or the other, because my view is there are few customers who are just waiting for you to show up with a solution that's exactly a fit for what they're trying to solve, and then they sure. buy from you. So they are, I always like to respect customers deeply and assume that they have already been trying to solve their issues or challenges. They already have a plan for how they're going to do so. And that plan probably didn't include you. Now, it may have included the idea that I needed a vendor or a partner, but they unlikely had you in mind. If that were the case, we'd just be taking orders. Therefore, I do think that the essence of sales is helping customers to make up their mind. And sometimes that means to change their plans for how they were going to solve a problem to a new plan for how they're going to solve a problem. Sure. I, I, what I am careful about is not to collapse changing someone's mind with manipulating them in any sense. But I do believe that the art of selling is having people make up their mind about a course of action that includes yes. you, your products and your services. Yes. Absolutely. I mean, that's been researched. I mean, Paul Nutt is the one most famously sort of associated with that who says there's always a choice that precedes a decision. Right, which is so when customers look to solve a problem, they have to define what the problem is, they evaluate the alternatives and create a set of options about how to solve the problem. And they always choose one of those options, one of which could be to do nothing, right? Absolutely. But they choose one of those options. Sales should be about helping the customer make that choice. It, and then they yeah. follow the they follow the choice with the decision about, well, who are we going to implement this choice with? Well, that's interesting you say that because I've come to the conclusion that buyers decide that they want to buy from you before they decide what they want to buy from your company. And I know it feels exactly. like that's wrong. Yeah. No, but that's and I don't think that's that contradicts what I was just saying. I think that that's one of the early parts of the whole In fact, it's the first choice the buyer makes, which is as I say, this is the universal question that's that's asked. Uh, not just in sales, but you know, certainly in sales, and we'll, but in other environments as well. But when you meet somebody and, and the desire is you want to help them somehow or sell them something, the first decision they always make is why you? Not yeah. you, the company, but why you? And I, I, I learned that early in my career. With Early on, I'd, I was just starting to sell computer systems, and I was selling to the construction industry, and I cold-called the CEO of a large construction company, home builder in the San Francisco area. And this was in person. I was going door to door and, and uh, in a business park. And the guy surprised me and showed up. And he took me into his office and very courtly old school gentleman. And, and I, like a newly trained salesperson, launched into my pitch. And he listened to a few seconds of hell up his hand and, said stop and he opened his desk drawer and he had this magnificent huge desk with nothing on it um, and pulls out this deck of business cards about two inches high from his, his drawer and spreads them out on the table in front of me and these were business cards from every one of my competitors and everybody from my office that had ever sold a system in that area and he said yeah I've talked to all these sellers and I haven't bought from any of them why should I buy from you 
And it just dawned on me at that point, he was talking about me, not my company. And it's just an important lesson to learn early on. I think it's, it is one of the most important lessons, and it's especially because that decision may have been made even while a buyer is looking at your company and your products side by side with others. They're going through the motions, but I think the sale happened you know, three weeks ago when they decided, I like this person more than that. I do have to do my due diligence. I do want to see what features and benefits might be in vendor B that I can mm-hmm. negotiate with vendor A, but it's a little bit like that interview scenario. I think people have decided whether they're going to hire someone in the first five minutes. We've judged whether we like someone in the first 180 seconds, maybe. And a lot of that is going on in sales. So my view is, what does it look like to design your first impression so that it is a great impression that lasts through time? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was just laughing because it's like I had a whole chapter about that in my last book. It's like, yeah, I mean, with this whole thing about precognitive processing where people form perceptions of other people before they're conscious of it. And so to your point, when you meet somebody, I think the research says, you know, people form perceptions within a quarter of a second, 250 milliseconds, uh, the blink of an eye. And then it's very hard to change those perceptions once they've been formed. And, and I have this conversation with sellers all the time about the small things matter, right? The little things matter. And one of the examples, follow up to your point was recently I had post on LinkedIn about, I said, you know, if, if I'm on a call with a seller and they call me pal or buddy, the conversation's over. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this occasioned huge engagement on LinkedIn, but a lot of sellers who are thinking, what's wrong with you, Andy? You could be having this, you know, this guy could be presenting you this amazing business opportunity and you're going to bypass it because they call you pal. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I mean, this happens all the time. That's how people make up their minds about you. Absolutely. If, if more sellers realize that competitive differentiation happens at three levels, there's you know how your company compares to another, and frankly, most buyers don't really care. No, and absolutely. Then, yeah, and then there's your product versus another, which is why enablement teams spend so much time training on product. I think that matters, but what matters most is how you, this particular human being as a seller, differs from the next person and the next uh, person after you in the way that you present yourself in what you call the tiny things. I would call it the manners of selling, you know, those things that stand apart because you have grace and poise and thoughtfulness where other people rush in with product or they don't clean up after themselves is a favorite one of my, my friend Craig Waldman at the <laughs> Kellogg Sales Institute. Yeah, I know Craig's been on the show. Yeah. yeah. He says, you know, when you leave a room, you think you've done a great presentation. Remember that more than likely the executive assistant of your customer will be going in there and cleaning up. It takes you five minutes to clean up after yourself, clean the whiteboard, you know, take away your right. glasses and your mess. And maybe it'll make no difference but maybe that person will notice and will say something. And it's these little things that people notice that I think play a bigger role in selling than the big idea, the big price point, the great pitch, and all these other things where most of sales is focused. Oh. <laughs> all right, I've got a man crush on you. Yeah, this is fantastic because this is, this is the things that I focus on because this is what make the difference. I, I, 
I think back on my experience, <clears throat> excuse me, and I came out of college. I've got a history degree, and I've been in tech my entire career. Uh, I've spent a good chunk of my career selling very large, very complex, very expensive satellite communication systems. Yeah, I was. I knew enough about the product as a layperson, but yeah, I wasn't certainly not an expert. And by selling to some of the world's largest companies, is is how was I able to make that happen? It was the relationships I built with people, the connections I made with people, the the questions I asked. It was the small stuff. It wasn't to your point, the product or the company, because I was selling for companies, startups that had no track record and no brand name. Yeah. I do think it's it's very useful for a seller at some point in their life to be part of an entrepreneurial venture where you've got maybe no product built, no customers, no reference points, no brand. Pretty much it's just you and an idea mm-hmm. sitting in front of someone <laughs> and you're selling against IBM or Google or companies that have these amazing brands and products. Now what? You've got none of that infrastructure behind you. How do you close a deal? And it's, it's all in your way of being, your conversation mastery, the little things that will touch, move, and inspire another human being into action. Yeah. I mean, this is, yeah, absolutely. I'm just, yeah, sort of rushing to tell things because it all brings back stories. Like for me, is is I was in that situation. I joined a startup. They were trying to, they were a small defense contractor. They're doing a few million dollars a year and they wanted to start a commercial business. And they had no products, they had technology. And, you know, the CEO <laughs> gave him a charter, which was, you can sell anything you want. It's just that we don't have anything. So you can sell anything you want. <laughs> and the only thing stipulation was is the customer not only has to pay for the products, but they have to pay for our R&D to develop and build the products. Yeah. <laughs> so go have fun. And it was. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was a lot of fun. And yeah, I was competing against all the major tech companies yeah, at that time. To for these mission critical applications, and we said we had no track record, no brand name, and yeah, it's just the people think that the personal isn't important, that it's you know minimal importance these days, that you don't need to be in a have connection with somebody, you don't need a relationship, you don't need to be likable, and I just shake my head. I said, since when? People are still people. Why is this? How has this changed? And I, I think Andy, the other issue is if we look into the future of what's likely to happen. I mean, we're already in a world where sellers have a tech stack to help them with cadence and outreach mm-hmm. and email and all of these things. And buyers have a, a set of technology. And right. now we're adding a layer of artificial intelligence on top of that. So the mm-hmm. question I'm obsessed with at the moment is when you take all the tasks away from a seller that you possibly can with wonderful technology, what remains for a seller to do 10 years from now in in the middle of this great expanse between me over here, my customer, a million pieces of technology away over there? What is essentially human that I'm still needed for as a seller or is it just going to be one bot selling to another? And my view is, the thing that will remain essentially human and necessary in the sales process is our ability to connect with another human being through conversation. And I, and I am betting that at least in our lifetimes, that's the one piece that AI won't remove from our skill set. I agree a thousand percent. And 
if you've read Jeffrey Colvin's book, Humans Are Underrated, it talks about this at, at length, where humans, yeah, if we do have <laughs> this situation where bots are more extensively involved in the interaction and buying and selling, what becomes the differentiation? How do you differentiate an automated buying experience from another? It's the human that will do that. And his belief, and I think he's, he's absolutely right, he talks about it, is that the people that succeed in that environment are the people that learn how to become more intensely human. And that's a fabulous phrase. I, I love it. We, we describe our own business as helping people be more human beings. And people often say, well, what does that mean to be more of a human being? I'm already a complete human being. Thank you very much. And, <laughs> and our response is, you're right. And what are those skills that are simply irreplaceable? Let's build more of those, knowing that who we are today is not a match for who our businesses will need on the bench two years from today. Right. So I hadn't really planned to go down this road, but let's go follow that that statement you just made. So what are those, in your mind, those irreplaceable human skills or habits? Well, the, the first one we've spoken about is the ability to very quickly connect with another human being mm -hmm. and have them relate to meeting you as if it's a gift to their life. And I don't mean that you should show up arrogantly like I'm a gift to the world, but I do think <laughs> your mindset should be, how do I need to behave in the way I speak to, listen to, and take care of my customer such that they might go home that evening to their spouse or their partner and say, you know, I met this amazing person today. I'm so grateful they're in my life. Mm -hmm. And if you can do that, well, frankly, I think the rest of the sales process is pretty easy. Uh, but the, the balance of these acts are not so much these moments of inspiration where you tell a great story or you engage in a wonderful conversation with a customer. It's also the consistency of how you show up, which is why we're so focused on habits, because we think it is hard to be wonderful as a seller when you're having to be deliberate about every single moment. Isn't it much easier to just focus on creating the five or 10 or 15 habits that if you practice them regularly, perhaps daily with every single customer, will have you show up and stand out in every interaction you have with them. Mm -hmm. So it's really thinking about what does it take to transform knowledge into skills that then embed as habits. And habits. You know, in my view, where we're missing things a lot in the enablement world is we still have a dream that if people know things, they will do things. <laughs> and so we have this one-hit wonders approach to training, which I think has failed right. human beings. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we spend $20 billion a year in the U.S. on sales training. And to the best of my knowledge, you know, I have a specific unit of productivity I use to measure sales, which is revenue generated per hour of actual selling time. And my belief is that hasn't improved in the last 40 years, despite the introduction of all the technology. I love that metric because it, it makes you focus so clearly not on how much time you spend, but what you do in those do minutes. In that time. You. Yeah. Beautiful metric. Well, when you're talking about, um, yeah, I mean, the skills and the habits and so on, I, I've early in my career, I came across this quote from uh, Vince Lombardi. 
famous coach of the Green Bay Packers, and hated rivals at the time of the Chicago Bears, still are to some degree, I guess. And and the quote, it's almost like a poem, but it it's uh, it's called starts with winning as a habit. So winning is a habit. And he says, watch your thoughts, they become your beliefs. Watch your beliefs, they become your words. Watch your words, they become your actions. Watch your actions, they become your habits. Watch your habits, they become your character. And, you know, you talk about sales manners. You know, to me, I, I call that character. Yeah. And we, we don't emphasize that at all in hiring and in training and in coaching people it's it's and but that's what people you know your character is the most visible part of you that people see when you first meet them i I love that perspective because we think that the job to be done by sales leadership is not having your sellers acquire new skills although that's important if you level up one from that the question is why do they need new skills and the common answer is well to be more effective that's obvious yes But the way I see it is who you are and who you become as a human being is entirely determined by the habits that you practice Mm -hmm. to that quote. And, you know, the, the world of psychological personality testing has done us, I think, a disservice because it's left us all thinking, well, I'm this type or I'm that trait and therefore I'm a fixed human being through time. Right. But if you think about how we judge someone when we meet them, I'd say, you know, I think Andy is this way and he's that way and I I have a set of attributes. I judge those attributes by watching how you behave, how you treat me, how you treat other people, how you speak to people, and how that persists over time. So if, if I judge you as simply the collection of your habits, the same is happening of me. And Mm -hmm. therefore, the question I would ask a sales leader is, whom do you want to be your team in a year from now or two years from now, describe that set of characteristics or personality traits, and then let's go to work on helping people transform to become those human beings, like highly effective, magnetic, charismatic, you name the traits. There's a set of habits that have us view people in that way. Right. Well, it's, it's interesting you, you phrase it that way too, because if you know, one of the things with these personality tests is they're sort of the ant, they're a fixed growth mind, a fixed mindset, excuse me, it's a sort of growth mindset, right? Because they're basically saying you are who you are. Yeah. And it's ironic that sellers and sales leaders and sales managers increasingly seem to rely on those to just sort of assess people when they're in the very business of growth and transformation. Yeah. Now, I do think it's an interesting question why are personality tests so stable over time? And I think the answer is, it's actually a very difficult thing to transform a human being. Because essentially, we're asking you to quit some habits and create new habits. And what we know about humans is, one of the hardest things we can do is change our habits. Well, I think that's a, (coughs) getting ahead of myself a little bit here, but I think that's one of the really interesting perspective and viewpoint is, is I think that we get too focused on this idea of transformation as opposed to incremental change in terms of, okay, here's the path from where you are today to where we want you to become or where you think you want to become a year from now or two years from now. And, I, and we get some of this in this conversation talking about new habits because I, I think it was Duhigg that brought up in his book is that uh, the power of habit is that, that we're born with all the habits we have. 
all we're going to do is change the ones that we have. As been, I think when we talk about creating new habits, I think that's that suddenly sounds hard to people. But if we say instead of flipping a switch from left to right, we're just going to move the dial just a little bit today, <laughs> right now, and we'll keep moving it over time once you master this. But we're just we're changing as opposed to transforming. Yeah, it's, it makes it much more accessible too. I think transformation is the big outcome from the daily incremental application of practice with feedback. And if you just change 1% every single working day of the year, you're 10 times different or better or more effective a year from now. So I always think of feedback being like compound interest to your talent yes. account, just really magnifies over time. I like that. Yeah, I, mean, I wrote about this a handful of years ago. I'm a big follower of professional cycling and Tour de France. And and there was this interview with Dave Brailsford, Bra- Brailsford uh, easy for me to say, who at the time, I think still is the manager of the, what was then called the Sky team, which had Chris Froome and was winning the Tour de France. And his whole philosophy was that, yeah, we don't look, f- we look for, tr- we look to transform through what he called the aggregation of marginal gains. Right, so we're looking for these half percent, one percent improvements in everything we do, and no stone unturned. Whether it's positioning on the bike, it's our equipment, that's the weight, it's the fabrics we wear on our jerseys, it's our nutrition, all these things. And I think that's a great sort of metaphor for sellers to think about: is yeah, we just want to keep on changing, keep on improving, but it's the small gains you make. To your point, become these you know the investments in your your sales bank account and the compounding of interest is huge. Yeah. Anyway, you know, one of the things I'd I'd love your reaction to is also this idea of what it actually takes to create new habits over time. Uh. Uh, Our biggest insight or among our biggest insights, I think is this idea that we don't actually have habits as human beings. Rather our habits have us. And (laughs) what I mean by that is we think that our, Our habits are, in some sense, internal to us, which is why we describe them as my habits, and I have this habit. But if you look at why humans behave in the way they do, and you notice that, for example, the same Andy Paul will behave differently in a library on Monday morning as you would in a bar on a Friday night, that's not because you're two different people. It's because you're in two different situations. So our view is that most habits are actually encoded in the world that surrounds you that pulls out certain behaviors from you consistently over time. And unless you get skilled at noticing how the contexts of your life affect your behavior, it's not easy to change that behavior because you're having to exercise extreme will to overcome the default behavior that's appropriate in a given situation. So if that's a little uh, esoteric, I would rather say it this way. Yeah, but it's really interesting because it, 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 well, I mean, to some degree, it it aligns with, you know, this sort of philosophical school that's emerged about how, you know, technology is really, it's not this external thing. It is us, like our phones are, they are us. That's that phone, the computing power is, is an extension of our brain, not something that's sort of imposed on it or that, and it seems like that's sort of related, right? We got, this context that we operate in this, this larger sphere. And I sort of like that idea is that, you know, we pull the habits out based on the context. 
Yeah, and what makes it interesting as a human is there are multiple overlapping and competing contexts. So there's yeah. the people that surround us, they certainly influence us. There's yep. the space we create, including our home offices. There's all this technology and the systems under which we operate. And then finally, there's that interesting context that I describe as our mindset or the context mm. of itself, which feels very internal to me. You know, I believe this and I have this view. It's interesting for people to notice that our mindsets, our beliefs, our opinions are a construction. We learned them somewhere. We adopted them right. somewhere. And so we can choose different ones. Right. And as we well, think that, this, go ahead. Well, I'm sorry. I think that's the, really the important thing about habits. And, and uh, as Marshall Goldsmith's book triggers, I think that, that for me, so did a great job explaining it, is that you know, when, you, when you have a trigger that triggers a habitual behavior, is you always have a choice, right, about whether you want to pursue that habitual behavior or choose something else. And, and I think that's, you sort of, you know, alluding to this, is there's, we have an element of control over that. You know, we're not surrendering to our habits. We don't have to surrender to our habits. We have a choice to make. Yeah, I agree. I will say I think that the harder choice to make is, is not to react to a trigger, that takes a lot of discipline. When I can, I try and go upstream one level and ask, how might I remove the negative triggers and replace them with triggers for the right actions so right. that I can allow myself to sort of react, but it's the correct reaction versus the disciplined choice to overcome a negative triggering. Yeah, and Goldsmith sort of talked about, and I think, and others have too, is, is that in the sense of habit, you know, that when you, if you can't avoid a trigger and the trigger happens and you have this impulse to respond a certain way is <laughs> the habit you have to develop <laughs> is to is is to pause yes right that pause and, and this pause is, it comes up time and time again and it, i found as i've in lots of different behaviors uh, i was talking to a seller a couple years ago after i'd given a keynote address and and you know they're saying you know they're having problems with asking questions and sort of waiting for the response to come back, right? They want to jump on it with their own response, uh, which is, you know, common among new sellers. And I said, just count one Mississippi. And if you haven't talked by then, you're not going to talk. You wait for the, the buyer to, to finish their response. And I think this pause really becomes a really interesting thing in many behaviors and habits. Yeah, I love that you brought that up. We, we spent a lot of time researching this, the tiny little thing that no one notices, which is the dead air between two people in a conversation. And it, it's fascinating research. Just to, You know when you have the experience of listening to someone reading a piece of text versus speaking naturally, your ear can detect that it's reading versus speaking. Mm -hmm. and it turns out, or it appears to be, that it's the difference in pause lengths that has it so clearly sound like reading versus speaking. And I think the same is, is true, you know, when you introduce your name. If you say, my name is Andy Paul, and there's no pause in between, no wonder people can't remember your names. You all say, I'm, I'm bad at names. It's because we're bad at sharing our name. And so hmm. if you take your trick and you say, my name is Andy, one Mississippi to yourself, Paul, you give people the time to hear your name, let it sink in and remember it. 
And I think this is, this is a theme that goes across the entire sales conversation. If in doubt, shut your mouth <laughs> and see what happens. Well, yeah. Well, it's part of the reason I, I encourage sellers to read poetry. Because I think it starts teaching that idea of injecting pause into, into your conversation. Because you know, you're, you're talking to a specific meter, theoretically, and there are pauses the author built in. I like that advice a lot. I, I'm going to borrow that, if I may. Oh, absolutely. It's all uh, attributed, yeah. yeah. I <laughs> often recommend that sellers go and do an improv course. Yes. And the reason they think I'm recommending that is they've heard about the yes and rule. And yes, I'm going yeah. to learn about yes anding. And so I've got this. Thank you very much. But what I learned from improv is the art of agreeing with another human being without saying a word. Now, explain that. That's interesting. So if you're on stage with someone else and they come up with some crazy idea, how do you go all in and agree with the idea so that it makes sense to the audience, but without speaking a word? And it's got to do with you know, body posture and leaning in and being engaged and being in support of what's going on on stage. Mm-hmm. And I think the same is true with customers. They are speaking. My job is to be in violent agreement with their right to speak to validate what they're saying, to give them the space to let it all out, even though the content of what they're saying I may disagree with, the time will come for me to share my view. But right now, my single job is to be in full and complete agreement with my body. And maybe, you know, I may say, yes, I agree in addition, but it's a, a physical act more than it is a language act. Yeah, I love that. I love that. I mean, yeah. And, and this is one of these things, the nuances we talked earlier about in virtual selling that some people have rightly pointed out is, is yeah, when you're on screen with someone, is, is not like body language, the importance of body language is, has disappeared, even though they can only sort of see you from the, <laughs> the shoulders up, is if you lean into it, people understand. They'll see it. I do think there's so much going on at the level below our consciousness that matters yep, and that we can be deliberate about. And it's hard to, to always know, you know, did I have the impact I was having? Because it's not like customers will say, oh, I noticed you really leaning in and I appreciate that. Thank you. May I buy from you? <laughs> so we have to trust the research into what it says about how humans think, feel and act. And therefore, what it looks like to show up as someone who, as I said earlier, feels like a gift when mm. they come into our lives. I love that. All right. So we <laughs> haven't really got to the main theme of what I want to talk to you about, but I do want to touch on it before we run out of time, which because it's it really important and aligns with a number of conversations we've had on this program recently about mental health and sales and so on. And so... We sort of went through most of the the 10 habits of performance improvement, but the 11th habit you talk about in the book, which, again, I I think was so important, is self-care. And this idea, in my mind, about how important the whole person is. And and you've referred to this already. And we don't – gosh, we just don't pay any attention to that. And when we're in the business of performance improvement, 
yeah, you, the human, are affected negatively by something, you're not going to be able to perform. Absolutely. And, you know, we, we call it the 11th habit to recognize that for most humans and most companies, we don't attend to our own health, happiness, and security until that point when it's too late, something's been lost, the proverbial right. 11th hour, hence the 11th habit. And so the, the book is about making the case that although listening empathically and telling stories and all of these other sales habits are really important, the foundation that they all rest upon is whether or not you show up at all. And if you do, are you filled with mental clarity and energy, free from the distractions of worrying about making ends meet and right. not having to deal with mental health? And I, I think the reason this is so important is sellers have a bad reputation as being manipulative and selfish and money hungry and all of those things that are associated with our profession. It's not been my experience. I find no. that sellers are committed to helping other people, relentlessly so, even mm -hmm. to their own detriment. And so the mindset shift we, we're trying to create with this book is in order to serve your family, your customers, your boss, your company, you do have to first invest in yourself. It is an act of service to others to spend time exercising and meditating and eating well and managing your 401k because it allows you to show up and be extraordinary for others. So it's a, it's a heroic act, not a selfish act. Yet so many people relate to trying to get workout time or time for myself as if I'm robbing my customers or my company of something. Which has gotten worse during the pandemic because many companies have just presumed that since you're not on a train an hour and a half a day or you're not in your car an hour and a half each way, you know, if you happen to be in Los Angeles, is that that's not work time. Yeah. And so the work day has expanded and there's, it's just, it was taken for granted by companies. And I, so, you, you know, you point out these three performance factors, health, happiness, security, you know, when you think from a sales perspective, security is the way most management teams treat sales is you're under the gun every single month. And how can you ever feel you have some level of security if you feel like the sword of Damocles is hanging over the back of your neck? Yeah. I'm, I'm 100% in agreement that quarterly targets and the pressure we put sellers under has gone too far. I know many sellers are competitive and we like a goal and we like a target and we mm -hmm. like to compete. So all that's great. But when it becomes dangerously about the number rather than about serving your customers, I think two things happen. Seller burnout increases. And secondly, shortcuts start to be taken. And that'll catch up with the company when a buyer has bought something and they're not quite sure what they bought or the process felt rushed and you're starting on the back foot as you move your company mm -hmm. to customer success teams. So I think it is healthy to compete. I think goals are wonderful, but work has made no excuse for infecting our home life, especially under lockdown. So this whole idea of work-life balance is a myth. Mm. 
and we're complicit with that. You know, we're the ones taking work home. We're the ones waking up and looking at our cell phone and putting it down as we go to sleep. So it's not like companies have done this without our violent agreement. <laughs> yeah, we've we've definitely acquiesced in this. And but by the same token, is I think what's evolved is that in the individuals just are afraid they can't say no. Yeah. And, and it shows up in the sales process too. You know, I, I don't sure. think it's always wise to say to customers yes all the time when if you don't believe that something would serve them to have the courage to say no, as it is to your manager or your peers, saying no is often a gift and not a, a, a sort of negative thing for people because it often prevents the wrong action. And I, I, for people who listen to the show often, I've, I talk about this often, is I, I think one of the things that's missing increasingly in today's environment is not just a function of the, the pandemic. It's existed, it's really, I think it's really more an artifact of the infusion of technology throughout the text, you know, the sales stack and the marketing stack and so on, is that you know, we're using technology to try to make people, in essence, clones of everybody else. Right? I mean, if I can record your phone calls and record the phone calls and listen to phone calls and analyze the phone calls of my entire team, you know, Jennifer does it the best. I want everybody to be Jennifer. But to a point we were talking about earlier is everybody's got their own individual character. Not everybody can be Jennifer. They could be as proficient as Jennifer, but it's going to be as John, not as Jennifer. Yeah. And, and so this, this is another you know, sort of added level of stress that comes in. That uh, you know, people being sort of forced, and they're afraid to say no, right? I, 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 for whatever reason, got away with that throughout my careers. Is you know, if I got advice to sell a certain way or do something, I would think about it. And if I thought it didn't align with what I thought my strengths were, I would say no. And maybe I said maybe I was fortunate to have bosses that that let me get away with it. But I think you have that job as a seller is to say no. And that you're talking about uh, saying no in a particular instance, which is when you get feedback. And I think that is very true. You know, we, we believe that the giving and receiving of feedback is the fundamental habit because it's, mm -hmm. it's the art of getting good at getting great at anything in record time. Right. But we always say feedback is not truth. It's someone's opinion from their perspective through the lenses that they wear now, if you're hearing the same thing from 30 people and maybe you've got a wonderful conversation intelligence piece of AI looking over your shoulder and it's in violent agreement, you know, now those, those sets of opinions may signal some truth in all the noise, but it is still for you to decide what should I take from the feedback? How should I make it my own so that I become a more human being, not a robot? Because if, if exactly. that's your intention, beware a bot will take your job shortly. Yeah, yeah. No, I I couldn't agree more. I, I yeah, I had one boss who who asked me once. who said, "Don't you ever say yes to anything?" <laughs> but it was, and the answer was no. But the um, <laughs> and that's an extraordinary compliment. Wow. I, yeah. I would take that as the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. But in sales, you know, for me, with the feedback, because I, I was very coachable, right? But I was also developed uh, an opinion at some point about, yeah, I don't think that's the way that I could succeed. 
doing what you're suggesting. Maybe there's this, right? I mean, because I, like most people, I think that succeed in their careers, evolve tremendously over time. But at the end of the day in sales, you are responsible, right? I mean, I had managers give me advice. I thought, okay. And actually, I'd tell them, I said, I can go do that. But I don't think it's going to work. So, But if you force me to do it and I go do it, it doesn't work. I'm going to get fired. You'll still have your job. Yeah. I find it ironic that, that many sales leaders would agree with us when we say a defining attribute of top sellers is courage. And they say, yes, absolutely, that's the case. But it takes an enormous amount of courage to say no, in particular in the hierarchy of business. So for me, evidence that a seller has courage is the fact that they prepare to say no often and stand by their, stand by their position uh, mm-hmm. and it. Because I, I think someone who says yes to everything is not saying yes to anything in particular that will make them stand out. Yeah, and it doesn't make them feel more secure. It doesn't make them happier in what they're doing. I mean, we look at your three performance factors of health, happiness, and security. I think these are so under under underutilized, uh, you know, underthought about, not that I know it's a horrible phrase, but is unconsidered. Is, is we have to start bringing more of this in. As sales is a performance-based profession. So I'm a huge soccer fan. And everybody knows that. Everybody listens to shows nodding up and down. Liverpool fan. and But if you look at the coaching staffs of professional sports organizations these days, you know, they have all these specialists on the staff that are geared to help support, you know, the health, happiness, and security of the players. You know, there's, there is one, uh, I'd have to look up the quote, but one famous coach uh, in English football, I forget who it was, who said, when they bring someone to the side, they said, yeah, we, we spend time coaching the person before we ever talk about coaching their performance. Yeah. And their skills. That's beautiful. Right? As, you know, we have this in sales. We bring all these new people into sales. They don't know how to be a human being. Yeah. And we do nothing to help them make this transition that is so fundamental to their ultimate success. And the, the last thing I'd, I'd like to invite you to consider in this area of health, happiness, and security is we, we focused on doing that for our sellers. And should we? Absolutely. Should we co-opt them as partners in managing their own health, happiness, and security? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But the reason we focused on these three things is we asked literally tens of thousands of people, like, what do you really want for yourself and for your life? Or if you can't answer that question and you have kids, what do you really want for them and their lives? And everyone says health, happiness, financial security. Right. If that's true for our sellers, it's also true for our customers. And so I often challenge sellers not only to invest in their own health, happiness, and security, but in the sales process, how might you pay attention to and support that in the humans that are buying from you, let alone solving their business problems? Well, and, and you're so right on, on that. And this is something that, again, as most sellers overlook, is that every stakeholder, let's say, in a decision, in a purchase decision, to your point, is considering it on two levels. What's this mean for the company? What does this mean for me? And so when you're doing discovery and you're talking to a stakeholder, and to your point you just made, if you don't understand 
what this means for them on both the corporate and the personal level, then you're missing out. How can you possibly look to build consensus among the stakeholders if you don't know what's motivating them? And that wonderful research from, from Harvard about how relationships influence our health is always a nice reminder for me when I'm talking to sellers that although you're having a conversation with a buyer in the interest of selling them something, just remember that you're also taking some time from their very valuable life. Make it count so that mm -hmm. the relationship that comes out of it is something that actually leads to their health, their happiness, their, you know, them going home at the end of the day, having had a great experience because they spoke to you, not because they bought something from you, but because they spoke to you. Yeah, I, I coined a, a phrase or an acronym in my first book, speaking to this point is, is I firmly believe that when you're talking to anybody, but let's just say in this particular case, uh, a potential customer, is they calculate the value that they got from your interaction. And I called it a return on time invested. And so they do that. If, and if you have multiple interactions with them where they don't feel they received anything of value in exchange for the time they gave you, you don't get any more time. Yeah, that's a great way of looking at it. What's the, the calculus of value added through my conversations with my customers? And it sort it sort of it stems from research Herbert Simon did um, about this in the early seventies. He wrote a white paper about this. Is when people are are you know overtaxed, and this was he was sort of anticipating what was going to happen. In the internet decades or decade and a half at least before it started coming to reality. So when people are inundated and bombarded with multiple sources of information, how do they make a decision about where to allocate slices of that attention? And his research found is they basically make an economic calculation. Was it worth that time? Am I getting a return on it? That's a very humbling thought for sellers to always remember that I'm, I'm being judged for the value that I add, me personally, not my product, personally. not my company, just me personally. Right. Yeah. Well, and, I, and you talked about a Harvard study. There was one I know that came out, uh, God, I forget, maybe 2000, eh, I forget. But sometime during the teens, I believe, that said that that, and we talked about this early on, is that buyers trust the individual seller, and that trust level is more important than the trust they have in the company they work for. And as long as you keep that in mind as a seller, yeah, you know, it's a good starting place. And great career advice, considering you might move five or ten times through your career, you might be selling to the same human being five or 10 times over, but a different product. If you're counting on your product doing all the hard work to close a deal, you know, don't expect a buyer to be warmly happy when you walk in the room next year representing a different product, unless they bought you first time. Right. And this is, this is there's some controversy about this in, in the sales ecosystem, ecosphere, echo chamber, LinkedIn, and so on, of people coming out and saying, A, relationships aren't a thing in sales. You don't need to have a relationship with your buyer. And B, you don't even need to be likable. In fact, you shouldn't be likable. <laughs> and I'm, I had a fairly extended animated discussion with someone about this the other day. I stopped short of yeah, calling him silly. 
but it's <laughs> I wonder where that comes from because it's it's so not true. I mean, if you're not yeah, you're not forming a friendship with someone, but by virtue of connecting with someone and working together to achieve something, you're in a relationship. And yeah, we talked about the little things before. You have a choice. I mean, being likable is a choice. Why wouldn't you want to be if it's positive? It adds to the equation, their calculus about whether they want to work with you or not. Yeah. I've, I've wondered about this mystery myself. Where did it come from? And my conclusion is that there have been and they continue to be companies that define an industry. They create it and their product is so wonderfully new and unique that people want to buy the product almost despite the seller. And there is mm. this idea that we have to challenge our customers and really, you know, put them on the back foot so they think differently and they'll buy from us versus someone else. I think that comes from companies that have dominance in a market where mm-hmm. that kind of behavior seems to work because what you're missing is the product dominance in the background. But as soon as the right. competitive environment grows up around those companies, that kind of arrogant approach, I think, fails. And the best lesson I can share with someone is what we were talking about earlier. Go and sell for a startup and see how oh. you do not building relationships and whether you make a single sale or not. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, Andrew, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. I really enjoyed it. Likewise, Andy, as, as we say, you know, health, happiness, and security really make a difference to people's lives. It's what we want. And so much of my happiness comes from speaking to smart people, and I've loved this time together. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. So if people want to uh, learn more about your book and connect with you, how should they do that? They can always reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm very active there. Or email me at andrew at habits at work spelled out. So H-A-B-I-T-S-A-T-W-O-R-K.com. I know that's a long email address. Uh, There's info on our website, habitsatwork.com. And on my personal and professional speaking site, andrewsykes.com. So lots of ways to find me. Perfect. Well, Andrew, we will make sure we do this again. I look forward to it. Thank you for the honor of being on your show. Thank you. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, as always, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. We're ever so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank Andrew Sykes for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you could also leave us a rating or a review and let us know how we're doing, well, we'd appreciate that too. You can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So thank you for your help. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. <laughs>